0: Hi, I'm John Porteus of the Lovells Township Historical Society, and you're listening to the Backcast Podcast. Hey, this week we've got a great episode for you. We're uh, joined by Ann Miller. Ann is the author of The Hatch Guide for the Upper Midwest Streams, and this is, not that I have favorites, but this is one of my favorite episodes, so I really think you're going to come away uh, with some knowledge and... uh, entertained. So sit back, relax, enjoy, and in this one, maybe take a few notes.
1: Um, delighted to uh, delighted to start this. Uh, John set this call up with Ann Miller, uh, who is a renowned uh, entomologist and uh, quite a good fisherman, I might add. And she's written a wonderful hatch guide for the Upper Midwest streams. And uh, uh, most of us that uh, enjoy fly fishing. Uh, in uh, northern Michigan, uh, have it and refer to it. And uh, we thank her for doing the work, uh, and it's delightful to have Ann with us today. Uh, Ann, maybe you would just uh, give us a little background, uh, how you got involved in fly fishing and and how you uh, uh, started it. Particularly, I'd like to have you tell us about the big brown trout on the back page of that book. (laughs) monster brown trout with Anne with a huge smile on her face and uh, maybe you don't have to tell us where you caught it but maybe what kind of a fly you use so Ann, okay. like okay thank you for joining us and uh we're looking forward to having a good conversation with you
2: sure all right well thank you thanks I'm, I'm glad to be with you guys um so what brought me to fly fishing so um you know, as a kid, I think it's so important to introduce kids to fishing. Um, and I think most kids love to fish. And as a family, we would—we didn't have any gear and, or a boat or anything. But a couple times a summer, my dad would go to a lake and rent a rowboat and hope it didn't leak. And my mom would pack lunch, and we'd take these, you know, just ridiculous old cane poles with the same mono wound on it from 10 years ago and we would go fish for bluegills and um you know we just looked forward to that and loved it and uh i i I always felt like it'd be really nice to have a spinning rod and i don't think i had one until i was well into my 20s um but uh when i was in graduate school uh, a friend of mine a colleague uh The the first year I met him, he was sitting at his desk tying flies, and I said, what are you doing? What is that? And he had all this deer hair around and, you know, different interesting materials, and, um, you know, he started telling me what he was doing and uh, how to, you know, all about fly fishing, and we got to talking, and um, he just was like, yeah, I'll take you fly fishing, I'll take you fly fishing. And, of course, I had to wait. That was in the fall. I had to wait until um the following summer and you know he took me out during a hex hatch and on the um on the maple river up near uh pelston and uh, we walked walked you know probably 10 o'clock at night through some farmer's field and he dropped me off in a little fishing spot and he said well now you know how to you got a flashlight and um he, he had an extra rod. N- never gave me a casting lesson or anything. He says, Now, this is how you roll a cast. Now, you sit here when the fish come. <laughs> he says, Here's a fly. Here's one more in case you lose it. But he says, Whatever you do, do not wait out because it's really deep. I'm like, Okay, yes. Yes, Dave. Yes, Dave. So, um, you know, how a uh, uh, hatch will go. And uh, the first fly or the first slurp you hear, it's like, Oh, I'm going for that one. And of course it's tucked under a bank and it's it's like, you shouldn't have gone after that one. And within uh, probably 10 minutes, I had the worst, you know, nest of just awful, you know, tippet and leader and everything. And (laughs) there was no way to undo it. And, And he and his pal, my, actually my professor, had trekked way upstream and I called, you know, several times, no, nothing, nobody. And so, had to just sit there on the bank um, and watch this incredible hatch happen and the fish feeding around me. And I was so excited and there's nothing I could do. And it's like, well, I definitely have to come back and try this uh, again. And uh, so that's how I got introduced to it. And and then later on, I I took a a class and um, it was, you know, I loved all of it. But when I got to the entomology part, and the and using the flies and all the, you know, calling it a dun and a spinner instead of a subimago and a mago
3: and um
2: <laughs> that was like what really clicked for me and, and it was just like, wow, I could see doing this, like really doing this. And I really just fell head <laughs> over heels in love with the the whole sport. And and I and I still feel that way about it. It's just it for me it was a way to kind of combine all of my, you know, science background with, um, you know, with fishing. And um, so, yeah, that's kind of how I got into it. And um, I, I, growing up, I I really had a great appreciation just for the outdoor world. And um, I remember just, you know, sitting on the porch and as a very young kid and listening to a Cardinal sing and then watching it go over and then sing another song and then flit over here to another one. And, and that fascinated me. And, um, you know, so I think probably the first thing I fell in love with where was, you know, bird watching. Um, hmm. and then kind of just things went from there. When I, I, when I went to sc- I loved math and science in school and, uh,
1: I had a an
2: uncle who was very influential and he really wanted me to be a pharmacist and go to University of Michigan cuz that's you know what he had done and I did do that and I started off in pharmacy and it was great and, until I took my first biology uh class and then I had to take another one and it's like all right well if I take chemistry in the summer can I take some more biology classes which I did and uh, my counselor in pharmacy is like, mm, you know, maybe you're kind of barking up the wrong tree here. You know, you might want to think about what you really want to do. <laughs> so I said goodbye to pharmacy, and my uncle was disappointed, but uh, I wasn't.
3: <laughs>
1: so, um,
2: where,
1: where I guess, did you go to? You know,
2: I, I went to uh University of Michigan uh, for my undergrad, and then I took. Um, <clears throat> when i when I met my friend that introduced me to fly fishing, I went up to u of m s biology station in Pelston and I took the oh. um couple of classes up there. The first one I took was uh, limnology and the second was phycology or the study of algae and then I really felt i really loved that and um was you mm. know studying diatoms and a lot of ecology so i Went to he uh, was a professor at Bowling Green in Ohio, and I, I ended up going and um, doing my master's degree with him. And I went back up to the biology station for my to do my research on the Maple River. And I took a, an entomology class, and then I was like, Oh, I wish I wasn't doing algae anymore. I really love bugs, and I really. I think I, I I stayed you know I finished my um, algae stuff, but I, I studied a lot of um, just kind of whole aquatic systems. I didn't really want to just be focused on one thing and uh, began studying. Um, I took some more entomology and um, um, so that's kind of where that went. And and then uh, once I got into writing my book, I really really do- dove into it. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I taught a lot of, um, when, when I would teach fly fishing, I was always the one to teach the bug classes because, you know, nobody really knew much about it and I would get so excited about it that they're like, oh yeah, and you do this.
3: <laughs> so, um,
2: I could, you know, kind of two worlds were starting to, to come together, um, So um, I had – I became involved um, – well, my husband and I took a a fly fishing course together um, in – well, we actually was with L.L. Bean, and Dave Whitlock was the head instructor. That was years ago in the late 80s, yeah. Um,
1: Hmm.
2: And it didn't really stick for him, but uh, when I – back, you know, I I had um, two babies. And so I was staying at home and um, I was a member of both TU and um, FFF, which is now FFI, I guess. Um, And our local um, council chapter, the Great Lakes Council, had a really, um, they're very, very active. And, you know, you'd get the newsletter and see all these things that were were going on. Um, And I really wanted to be more involved and, um so I I ended up becoming the editor of what the newsletter at that time was called The Leader, and I met some just wonderful people um through through FFF and um and, and friends with with many of them now um in fact um Dorothy Schramm, you may know her mm-hmm. she and I taught a lot of uh, fly fishing together and um, that's kind of how we became, well, we became friends through fishing, but then um we really um had some wonderful times teaching over the years and uh so
4: Did, did that lead to your involvement in Fly Girls, Ann?
2: Yes, it did actually. So, uh Dorothy and I um well, let's see. There was something called the conclave up in Ross common on um, Higgins Lake and it was a it was a really neat event and a lot of classes were taught and people would come up and and learn casting and um, fly tying and all sorts of things it was a always a big kind of auction fundraiser for the for the Great Lakes Council and Dorothy and I started teaching uh, fly fishing and then we started teaching a women's class there. And this was kind of when, you know, the times were a little bit challenging for women. You could go into a fly shop and you no, know, they would just come up to you and say, well, are you looking for a Father's Day present or something for your husband <laughs> or your boyfriend? Or never even get weighed from that. It was really kind of like, so Dorothy and I decided we would take the bull by the horns and, um start teaching women's classes and we um we, we created some of our own workshops we just said well let's you know we put some flyers out and you know had got a place together got some additional instructors and had you know well over we have room for 50 in the class because we thought we would do kind of round robin stations and um offered lunch and um and just have people go station to station, and you know, we had well over a hundred people sign up. So we had to do repeat it and do a second one, and, and then we taught at fly shops and um, you know becoming an outdoor woman uh, weekend retreats. And but the common theme after teaching at all of these were women were like, well, well, now what? How do I? what do I do? How do I find other people to fish with? And where can I go from here? What's the next step? And so uh, Dorothy and I and um, a couple other people um, decided to create an organization. Um, and it was, we wanted it designed for women to be able to connect, learn to fish, have fishing outings where you could get together, meet other people. But we didn't want it to be gender restricted because we had run into that ourselves with um certain clubs. So it Fly Girls is open to men and we do have um several more than several. We have quite a few men that are members. Um sometimes, you know, their spouses or boyfriends or sometimes they're just, you know, like Dennis Potter's a fly girl. Um Bear Enders is a fly girl. Um
3: mm-hmm.
2: anyway, so um but uh we we started it in uh our first organizational meeting was in my living room in 1996 and it was a february terrible snowstorm and dorothy and i and um there were two or three other women a couple of them couldn't come because of the weather was so bad and we just sat down and we said okay what do we want to do what are our goals what is our you know, what, how do we want this to work? And we we didn't want to spend a lot of time in meetings. What we really wanted to do was spend time on the river. And so, Good. And, we're, and we're still this way. We have a very dedicated board and we have um, two board meetings a year. And the first one in in the fall, we set up the entire schedule for the year And somebody will say, okay, I will do this event on the Boardman River. And someone else will say, I'll do this steelhead event in November. And and you divvy it all up. And we we really are pretty much pieced together through the Internet. So um, we we are able – first off, we started with a newsletter. But, you know, like most clubs have gone to just connecting with each other um, through Internet and an online newsletter and a website – and uh and and so you know we've been very successful we're going to be 25 years old now exactly. uh um, that's amazing it is i that i mean we've held i can't i i wish i had um the capability to go back over the years i probably could but it would be so much work <laughs> um but to see just how many hundreds of women have Come and gone over the years, Um, but it's been a really wonderful group. And I think the best part about fly girls is so initially when we formed, you know, it's kind of like having a family. And there's a couple people at the top that are kind of leading everything. But then, you know, after a few years, people are like they become friends with each other and they start to plan little events on their own and. Um, pretty soon you have all these little pods, and it's like all your little sub families, and they go out and and that was like that was wonderful because I mean, look, you got all these people together, and they made their own little um friendships and they plan their own fishing trips now, and maybe they meet other people and bring them in and um so it it, it was um, i think I don't think we saw that when we sat down and formed it. But it was certainly, you know, a really wonderful result of it. And uh, we continue to bring new people in. Um, and, you know, it's always challenging to get younger people in. Uh, but um, we we work at that. But younger people, you know, they have a lot going on. I mean, it's hard when you're young, if you're young and working, young and have a family. You know, you mm-hmm. have to set time aside for yourself. And um, a lot of times women... Put themselves last and um, don't come into something like fly girls or fly fishing or a new sport or new passion until they, you know, are kind of retired or um, maybe their kids are all off to school and have a little time for themselves finally.
1: So no, it's a great story. It's a great program, and and I really like those uh, uh, the charts, the hatch charts, the the life cycle of the insects.
2: Yes, yes, I designed Both those um, yeah, um, they are um very, very yeah good. so that that was hey. another one of those, just any any educational tool that I thought would help people piece those, you know this is where you use this because you know this matches up you know this nymph or this larva, and why you call it that, and when it's happening and It helps people just kind of little lights go on, you know, when they can make all that make sense.
3: Mm
4: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's so rewarding, and That's awesome,
1: yeah. (laughs) I want to hear about that fish on the back of your book. (laughs) That is a beautiful big brown. That's Uh, (laughs) a big
2: brown. Um,
1: Can you tell us about that?
2: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) so... um, I actually caught that on, um, we were actually steelheading and, uh, ah, and, uh, like and that. I caught that. Yeah. And, and I caught that on a, uh, a, a larva, a larval pattern, but, um, it is, it was an absolutely beautiful fish. Um, and, uh, it, it was, it, it was a surprise and, um, um, beauty. We didn't we didn't catch a steelhead out of there, but um a big beautiful brown. But uh I have I have had some really good brown trout stories um over the years. I, I think my biggest was probably twenty seven inches.
3: <laughs> and oh my and gosh. almost
2: yeah, and and totally oh. just a goofy fish you know how it it was a hex hatch fish literally right next to the boat but um i had a beautiful uh 24 inch fish last year on an isonychia uh searching pattern right in you know middle of the afternoon late afternoon wasn't even it was like one of those things like you're talking away i was talking to john ray i fish a lot with him and uh, you know, I, I saw it was a nice eat. It wasn't in any real. It was in a fishy area. It wasn't like I had to work super hard at it, and and it took it. And you know, I had a good hook set. I didn't too much, and I you know, like it went down. And Johnny has a tendency to get really excited, and um, he's like, "Oh, that's a that's a that was a good eat," you know, and he's like. And this fish went right down. And he's like, oh, I think it's a stuck on a log. And it's like, no, it's still moving. <laughs> and, uh, you know, very, have to be really calm during those situations. And um, landed it. And it was just a gorgeous fish. It was, uh, it was 24. And actually just um, fished with Johnny um, in May when they just really, they'd only been out maybe a week after they were allowed to go out again, and we, the fishing had been really good, and then we got all that rain, and so I had him for two days, but we had to cancel the first, because there was so much water, and so it really, it wasn't, we didn't really have many bugs at all, and at a time when, you know, there should have been little mahoganies and um, all kinds of good stuff, you know, sulfurs were starting, and and there wasn't much going on so we did a lot of talking and we got to a spot and i was on we were on the upper Manatee, and there was a little um somebody had probably to you put in a nice or maybe the anglers or the table, um a little you know lunker structure and there were we literally had about four minutes of sulfur's feeding i was like oh this is great and i caught a little brook trout <laughs> And I started to bring it in and all of a sudden that brook trout went down. (laughs) The rod just thumped and, uh, it's like, you just got eight. So, you know, I don't know if you've ever had a fish got eight and then, you know, of course your fly comes flying back. So I'm hanging on like, all right, I'm going to hang on because I don't want to lose this fish. And, um, so I carefully played it for, and then, you know, it was on. But I know, like, a lot of times you'll bring it up, and it'll just, you know, regurgitate that fish in your fly. But the, that brown had gotten, it had it hooked itself. It was in the, you know, in its mouth. And uh, so we brought it to the net, and it was a, it was a beautiful brown. It was 22 inches. Oh,
3: my so,
2: gosh. Uh, oh, yeah, excellent. It,
3: was, a it story. was
2: good. It was like, oh, that was my really, my only, I had a couple other small fish, but it was like, well, that made the whole day worth it. And um, we <laughs> laughed and laugh and laughed. It's like, well, it's kind of bait fishing, but it's kind of not.
4: <laughs>
2: <laughs>
4: Nothing you can plan on that way anyway. <laughs> no, exactly.
2: <laughs> so, I fished Wakely Lake, you know, I try to get there every year early on. Before the weeds get high, and if you if you've ever been there and you're fishing for bluegills, it's like, you know, you'd like to see that bluegill, but as soon as the the bass know you're there and they know you're catching and releasing these bluegills, they sit under your float tube and just eat these poor things, you know, left and right. And but sometimes you'll be bringing one in and you'll catch a pike or a bluegill and. Um if you're careful you can land them. Um but a lot of times that blue that bass will come up and just spit it back out at you.
1: It's funny. Take it. You bet. It's mm-hmm. <laughs> like the barracuda with the bonefish.
2: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, mm-hmm. Anne, what you there's so many questions we have regarding uh your work uh and the uh, Midwest uh the hatch chart, the hatch guide. Um mm-hmm. Golly, you, you had you identified 26 different mayfly families and 14 caddis families and nine stonefly families. Um, how many of those varieties would we be able to find in, say, the Osamble system or the Manistee, Manistee system? They're not all there, are they?
2: Yeah, they pretty much are all there.
1: Um, oh, my.
2: Yeah, so... The interesting thing about insects, and whenever I, like, do a little talk or a seminar or workshop, um, insects are very much, I like to equate them to birds in that if you think about birds and habitat, it totally is the same with insects. So um, if you think of a duck, you know, you're thinking of, you know, maybe swamp area, um, lake, pond, but you, you're not going to be, you know, you wouldn't say, let's look for ducks and then walk out into like a, a forest or a cornfield. Or And then if you're looking for a pheasant, you wouldn't go to the pond. You know, you'd be out in that field and you're looking for a warbler. You're probably in a woods or something like that. And with all those uh, insects, insects, it's exactly the same. So um, here's an easy one, like with Hendrickson's early in the season and also sulfurs um you have to go to an area that has a lot of gravel because that's the kind of habitat they they live in and they they crawl around in the gravel and they feed on there and they're there most of the year they might drift a little bit but not much but now if you're going to fish for hex um, you've got to go to where they live and they they burrow into silty material um and so you, you can't go to that section you fish for Hex and expect to, I'm, excuse me, you can't go to that section where you fished Hendrickson's in the spring and go back and say, okay, I'm going to fish for Hex here. You know, you have to find the right habitat. Um, so a lot of the, when you think about things like blue wing blue live, they're kind of an all-purpose bug. They live they live on, they love a lot of vegetation, but they um, can also live in the gravelly area. So you, you find blue-winged olives in so many different habitats. I also live on submerged wood and um, especially vegetation though. Um, so you always want to have a blue-winged olive in, you know, just starting at about a size 16 and then getting smaller through the season. Um, mm-hmm. and And you can take that pattern all across the country and um you'll always catch flies on it um, so you know that that's a bug that you know you're you're always gonna want in your in your fly yeah. box.
1: that's about the yeah. earliest uh, bug that hatches too, isn't it for us
2: well there we have some winter stone flies, you know a lot of times people aren't mm-hmm. really uh on the river then, but if if you're on a you know some of the are rivers that are open year-round like the asable and the north branch uh,
1: mm-hmm. the
2: upper Manistee those are those are open year-round and um, you will you could go out with um, you know some of those early stoneflies some of them are hatching in uh, february so fish are not necessarily i mean maybe on a really nice warm day uh, an unusual day you might get a fish to look up and eat them you would probably be better off fishing um the uh the nymph pattern for that um and also you know just trying to understand um the more that you in reading my guide you know if you read the section every section will tell you where to find that insect is it in the gravel section is it in a silt section is it on submerged wood is it in a on you know maybe below a dam in um you know some of our caddisflies are there because they're filter feeders and they spin little webs and they, you know, collect food and that's going to be a better place for them than, say, in a gravelly area where there's not, you know, all that um, kind of debris in the water. Um, But, you know, like with stoneflies, they, right before they emerge, they migrate to the edges of the rivers. So if you are a real student of this, you're like, okay, I don't really want to, stand in the center of the stream or on the edge and fish to the center with a stonefly before an emergence because they're all, they've moved to the edges and the fish follow them. I mean, they see what's going on. They see more activity there. So you're better standing in the middle and fishing toward the edge with a stonefly nymph um, before an emergence. So um, that's what, you know, I try to get people to to kind of hone in on, you know, habitat behavior. And, um, it can be very overwhelming. I, I completely understand that, but, um, to, to just look at that guide and say, wow, well, there's a lot to learn here, but you know, everybody has a favorite time. There of the sure year. is, fish. I,
1: I, I didn't know that about the stoneflies until I read it in your uh, hatch guide, I had no idea yeah. that, uh, yeah. really you should, you should fish those by the, um, towards the bank, towards the edge.
2: Right, and so I I like to say you know in in tackling learning bugs, it's like if you would if you were a bird watcher, you wouldn't like try to look at that book and say, wow, how am I going to learn all these? You know, you start in your backyard at your bird feeder, learn, learning learn...
4: all your fall warblers at once.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what crazy person would do that?
3: So you yeah, you learn exactly. what, what's
2: natural, what you what you you know, so everybody knows at least six birds because they have them at their feeder. And that's true in your own home waters and your favorite time of the year. You're going to know at least six bugs every season. And then if you push yourself out and you're like, okay, well, I'm going to fish a different section of water or a different type of year, and I'm going to try to, you know, learn some of those new bugs. And then, you know, gradually you, you learn something. Hopefully you learn something new every year.
1: That's a good good suggestion very good mhm so, uh, and i have a question about the uh hatches one of my favorite hatches is the little trichorhizides and and mm-hmm. i learned a long time ago that uh you can start the the season when they when they kick on mid july late july whatever um and uh they're they're maybe a size 22 maybe 20 uh, is okay But as the season goes on, they get smaller. And by the end of the Mm -hmm. season, you've got to be down a size 28 or so for them to really, for the fish to pay any attention to them. Is is Mm -hmm. that typical of flies and is that accurate?
2: Well, that's a really good question. So um, at one time, it was thought that. so years ago, insects got put into a lot of different species, you know, they may have been there may have been subsequent hatches, and they got smaller and smaller. Um, and one one thing I'm thinking of is like the March Brown, and they called there was a March Brown and a gray fox and then as you know, DNA studies and things got better, they realized it was the same insect, It just the gray fox was smaller. and They've, um, studies have shown that what happens through the season is probably, and and this isn't etched in stone, but they believe that as resources are diminished, the insects maybe don't get quite as large. Um, And so the first March browns that hatch are our biggest ones. And then through the season, they get a little bit smaller. So you carry that pattern in several sizes. And the same is true with the trichos, although there are several species in general, they get smaller as the season goes on. The same with blue-winged olives. Our, our biggest one mm-hmm. um, is is a size 16, and that's the first of the season. And we never see another blueing winged olive that large. I mean, pretty much from then on, we're gonna be carrying them in, in smaller sizes, 18s, 20s, and smaller. Um, <clears throat> with a with a, the trichos, I mean, you know, some, putting out a size 28, and if you catch a fish on a 28, if you can see to put a fish on a, a size 28, <laughs>
3: more, more power to you. Thank you. you. <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: then I, I kind of like to say, well, just put a Griffiths gnat on, and, and that'll be a nice little cluster of trichos. Um, but it's, you know, it's like whatever you enjoy. And if you if you want that challenge and, and you can say, wow, I really did this. I targeted the fish. I had this size fly. I love doing that. My my favorite yeah, part of fishing is like I don't care what size fish it is. I want that fish and I'm
3: Uh-oh.
2: gonna I'm gonna figure out what it's eating. I remember exactly. the, on the uh I was fishing with Bear Andrews actually and I had that same conversation with him and and we were fishing brown drakes and it's like that fish has seen that brown drake and it is not eating them and you know this was before um i think this was before i was writing my hatch guide but um i had a little seine net on my net and you know we sure enough we seine'd it and there were all these little sally stoneflies also on the river and we switched to a little sally and sure enough it ate it and and mystery start. solved and those oh. those little seine nets that you can put over your net I mean, they, they, do you know what they are? Do you know what I'm talking about?
4: Oh, yeah. I think one of the best pieces of of advice I ever received as a new angler was to look and see what's in the water.
2: Yes, Mm -hmm. yes. And even if you can't say, oh, that's such and such and such and such, you can say, well, it's this color and it's this size. And you look in your fly box, and if you've got something about that size, size is usually more important than color. Um, then you switch it up and um, and hopefully find success. But it's just you know it's fly fishing is hard because there's or I, I should say more challenging just because there's not always just one easy bug out there. I mean that's always great when there is, but usually there's you know a lot of times there's more complications out there. And when when you solve that puzzle, you just are so proud of
4: yourself and
2: <laughs> like yes I did it. You know I i i uh, I figured
4: it out
3: it's, uh, you,
4: you kind of to follow on that and and we've seen it recently some of the just erratic bug behavior if you will, and maybe a simplified term but just uh with the drakes uh you know for a while they were coming off at quarter of eight you know then they go to ten and and then back to quarter of eight and they're just like all over the map is is that a function of uh climate or some other condition
2: well i think probably a number of conditions um i think i think pressure has a lot to do with it and i can't I can't totally dial it in, but, um, you know, as a system, weather system comes through and air pressure changes, it affects, it even affects people. I mean, we may not be as aware of it. Some people are. People that have really serious migraines and things are very sensitive to air pressure changes, and I think air pressure changes definitely affects fish and it affects insects and hatching. Um, and I, I, if I was a fishing guide, I would keep, I mean, it's hard because you're fishing, you're doing all these things, you know, to keep track of air pressure and then say, okay, what, what, what was my bug activity? What were my hatches? When did, and, and then, I mean, really you've got this massive set of data and I'd be like hand it to somebody and say, you know it'd be like a multivariate analysis but i mm-hmm. i really believe that has a lot to do with it and your whether personal. you can yeah whether you can um it, there's no magic thing then to say okay well because of this i think i should go at this time i mean you just have to be ready you know and um but it it does have a th- uh, it does have an effect on on hatching i think so if you can kind of think about that and make your own notes um and see you know, see why one night it's at this time and one night it's another. Um, if you can, if you can market that and sell it, you'll be doing well. Um.
4: <laughs> right. So, so you are you are a barometer watcher then.
2: I am, but you know what? Like, so like, here's my summer this year. I'm I'm doing all this wedding planning. If I could only get out to the river at six o'clock or eight o'clock, I'm going to go. Whether the barometer. You know, regardless, because (laughs) I mean, if you have the luxury of um, being able to do whatever you want, whatever you want, then then, yeah, you can watch the barometer. But I do watch it, but I still am going to go to the river and um, fish anyway, because you always learn something new. You know, whether you get to see some really cool um, bird or maybe you'll see a fawn or. You know, you'll see an otter running along with its baby in its mouth. I mean, that's all still part of the experience. And, um, you know, just standing in the river is magical for me. And I think it is for most people.
4: I agree. I, Volker, Volker definitely had it right that way. I mean, if you're, if you're trout fishing, you're going to be in a beautiful spot.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: Yep. Uh,
1: yeah. Indeed. And I have a question about, uh, the subject of drift. I think okay. i had first read a uh a magazine article you wrote about that and uh i hadn't i hadn't seen that in the uh, i hadn't finished reading the guide thoroughly i you know i i got it and used it as a uh, how do i do this and what what about this fly and and then i i did read the uh the drift article a few years later but um it, it sounds as if these uh uh Aquatic insects in the larva stage are moving a couple times a day, maybe three times uh is is it every day they move can you can you sh- shed a little more light on the the drift of the behavioral sure drift? yeah
2: yeah so um this was a study that probably happened um oh gosh, I don't know when the first drift studies were, but it was a really hot topic in the mid sixties um, but I'm sure somebody, at that time, you know, they, they sent a lot of grad students out really in the field and they would um, go out with uh, big drift nets and at all times of the day, like every hour, and they would sample and they would find that at, um, there were kind of really three peaks, but the um, the main peaks were at dusk and at dawn. Um, and sometimes there was a, like a midnight peak also. So, and when I say peaks, I meant in, when with you looked at a drift net and you, you know, basically counted biomass, um, there were more things in there at those two, three, let's say two peak times of the day. Um, and what an insect will do, some insects drift more than others, um, and you can, you know, kind of get down a rabbit hole and studying all that. Um, why they do it um, is still speculative, but um, there have been studies that show, um, so, for example, if you're this innocent little mayfly on, on a cobble and suddenly there are two or three bigger stoneflies there that are threatening. You might just want to get out of there. And so they may just release themselves and drift. It might only be a very short distance, um, you know, like say less than a foot that, you know, maybe half a foot, maybe a few inches. Um, maybe by the same token, you're you're grazing, eating diatoms and um, bits of algae or detritus and suddenly there's nothing left there to eat and you might just let go. Um, and in those peak times, it must just be at a time when it feels, why is it, you know, who knows, you know, but it, pr- presumably because it's a little safer from predators. Um, oh. So Man, they'll, they- they'll let go. Yeah. And, um, you know, there are studies you know, with caddis, um, they may actually, especially the, the net spinners and the free roamers, where they would just kind of take a, actually sort of repel off a, off their, um, wherever they, you know, a cobble or stone or a bit of plant in release and then, you know, move on to a new place. So, it's a very interesting study.
1: The do they seek the same substrate when they when they drift or is it just happening mm-hmm. they stay yeah, in we do,
2: them? right. So, um the 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 age-old question was, well, if everybody's drifting downstream, how is it that upstream, you know, doesn't get how is it the stream doesn't completely get you know, depopulated. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you see insects hatch, they they have this, you know, genetic mindset to fly back upstream um, mm-hmm. to repopulate. So um, there have been all kinds of studies that, that look at this and modeling and, you know, if this happens, then this should happen in return. And um, it can get really kind of overwhelming and complex, but um you know they we keep things upstream and things overall move downstream um but we kind of the insects mating or flying upstream and mating um kind of kind of like a big giant circle i suppose um mm-hmm. overall and, um so things we have bugs everywhere i guess <laughs> but yeah mm. so it's interesting um but and so your question was, do they do it every day? Um, as an individual, probably not. Um, but as far as an angler, oftentimes, if suddenly, you know, you're fishing and things are really happening on the surface, and then they stop. Oftentimes, that's you know, and and you and you recognize, you know, low light and it's it's start kind of stopping. It's it's good to just kind of put like a bead head on and um, kind of follow you know, just let it fish subsurface then for a little bit and um, see if you don't pick up some fish that way. And I, I think you probably
1: will. Good idea. Again,
2: in doing that, you yeah. want to certainly, you know, be aware of um, kind of the size of the insects, you know, so early in the season, they would be a larger bug, uh, larger size, um, versus say doing you know fishing that in August when a lot of things are gonna be much tinier.
1: As they get smaller does that during make the season. Sense? Yeah. It sure
3: does
1: that does. make sense? Oh absolutely. Good it's good yeah. advice. Um one question I have is about the, the uh the the stream beds. Uh we have a uh, we have an, a, a sand problem in the north branch. We seem to have a lot more sand than we used to are there any mm-hmm. bugs? And I, I can't seem to find anything going through the hedge book that really is a insect that likes to patch out of sand. Are there any no. insects so
2: that are- sand No, so sand is a, is a tough, um, when it's just sand, you're not really going to find anything um, insect-wise in there. Um, okay, that's and, confirmed. And actually, I mean, diatoms do grow. I mean, if you look at, you know, like with a scanning electron microscope, and you you look at a sand grain. There's lots of little grooves and pits in it, and algae will grow in there. A little bit diatoms will grow in there, but as far as an insect being able to hang on to that um, for you know stability, it's too small. They you know, like I think of a caddisfly using a, a sand grain to put it into its case. So. Um, but, as far as you know hanging out on to one tiny little pebble like that um it, there just isn't anything that you know lives in there, and it's a shifting, unstable surface surface
3: mm-hmm.
2: um and so, in rivers, it can be a real problem as far as fish habitat we you know we have a lot of sand in the Manistee and the asable and but when it becomes yeah. all sand, then it's an issue.
1: We we have quite so a study going on happen. to determine how much sand is in the river, and I think uh, I don't know if you know Dr. Mark Lutenton from uh, Grand Valley Oh, State. I know
3: Mark. Yeah. Uh
1: huh. Yeah. Yes, he's doing a, uh, a habitat study for the North Branch. He's going to map it to determine you know what percentage is, is sand and, and gravel and cobble and, and silt. Uh, he's also doing a biomass study, Ann. So. There's a number of us that that have seen a significant decrease in aquatic insects on the North Branch. And these are people that live on the river, uh, have property, they're watching it daily, and uh, they're saying, what happened to the granum caddis? We don't have granum caddis anymore. Uh, The gray Mm -hmm. drakes used to be prolific, and now we don't see those. Uh, We've Mm -hmm. seen a decline in a number of the insects. Some of them seem to be gone, and others where we used to have clouds of them are, are now significantly reduced. And Mm -hmm. uh, uh, we have representatives of all of these flies, but they don't seem to have the volume anymore. And the question is, do we have enough biomass to really feed a healthy trout population? And Mark uh, Lutenton has got a a group of grad students who are going to do the study this summer that's going on now uh, to check biomass to see how much food is actually flowing down the North Branch. Um, It would be interesting to see what we learn.
2: Yes, absolutely. Um I yeah, I would um I know Mark from back in my um diatom days actually and uh if you have his uh contact information, I would love to have that and um, I'd like to reconnect with him.
1: Oh I'd be happy to send it to you, Ann, sure.
4: Good. Real good.
1: I'll do that. I'll do that by email.
4: Okay so, and kind of along those lines do you the circumstances that you know Glenn described and that you know we're, we're kind of experiencing here, do you see things move in cycles uh, from a bug perspective?
2: I would say yes. Um, um, certainly some years uh, last year, like hex the hex on the manistee were almost non-existent. Um, there are some studies that show, like in really severe winter years, um, there can be some insect death from that, um, it, especially if they're up in areas that, you know, if you get shelf ice and stuff, and if it were to freeze down low, um, insects are pretty resilient, but when it comes to getting frozen, they're not so great. Uh, and um, also, if you have a lot of snowmelt to the point where you have very high flooding, that can also uh, wash a lot of insects downstream um, out of, you know, where you normally would have them. So, you know, do do they repopulate downstream or is it so catastrophic that they die? Those are questions that I don't know if the study they're so episodic it's very difficult to study that it's so hard to track an individual and say or a population so here's here's this population you know at maybe keystone landing you know you and there were some big floods up there this year Um, it's hard to go and sample a section and say okay here's our here's what we have and then you know, they're not, they can't just go back in and build tunnels and when you release them there, it's it's really hard to experimentally determine, um, you know, sample it, put them back in, and then have, wait for a big spate, and then see what you have left over, if anything. Um, I suppose there are ways, I don't know that there are studies that have done that, but um, yes, they, they can be washed out, and, and things that are more of a silt and silt loving that that would be easy to wash out Uh, when I think about some of our clinging mayflies like for example the March brown those things can hang on really tightly I think they're probably um, more resistant Um, so yeah I think climate change probably um, and then you know I, I think it probably is having some effects on populations um, probably in you know big episodic flooding and uh, these major rains that wash lots and lots of stuff down, um, and I there'll probably be more studies as as this goes on um, if we ever have you know funding for stuff like that again.
4: <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's it, it's the whole the whole thing is, is fascinating and I guess that's what keeps us all coming back year after year is just you know continuing to try to crack that code but it is uh well and to your point, I mean we've had what two significant blowouts, if you will, this year with you know just yeah. huge dumps of rain and uh it, it'll it'll be interesting to see what the rest of the season uh has in store for us.
2: Right. And also, it's it, it in part. I think, you know, it depends on when those big rain dumps happen. You know, at what stage, what maturity stage of a of the larval or nymph stage. Uh, you know, if if they're like, think of the stoneflies and they're migrating to the edges, and you get a big, huge blowout. You know, are they are they going to be able to find something to hang on to to prevent themselves from getting washed out? I mean, a lot of it just is a kind of, it depends scenario. The timing. Right, right. Where are they in the life cycle? Um, an interesting, interesting thing about insects, so, you know, caddisflies have what's called an instar. That's where they, they grow and develop, and they have five separate instars um, with mm. With mayflies, um, it's all species specific. Like, you know, it might take a blue winged doll of 22 molts to get from egg or, at, you know, the first uh, nymph after it hatches up to the adult. But mayflies are interesting. They, you know, if conditions are such that, you know, it, it doesn't have to go through maybe step 19, hmm. it might all of a sudden just kind of like mm, trigger and um, be able to to molt and to the um into that done stage or the subdomago stage early so there's a certain amount of plasticity there uh, that's been shown like so maybe instead of 20 it might only need 18 um actual molts and so it it's really related well it probably um resource related or perhaps yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. I mean, if they're super well fed and conditions are right and temperatures are good, um, they'll they can kind of control that molting um, and um, go sooner or later.
3: Wow, fascinating! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is my yeah. head, my
4: head's spinning, Glenn. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> me too. We've got a lot to consider.
3: <laughs>
4: so, I, so, and uh, am okay, realizing again, I don't know. <laughs> Well, that's, that's the beauty of this. It's, you know, a, a lifelong quest. Yeah. It
2: is. It so much is. It's just
4: oh, always, sure. always learning, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, uh, real quick uh, question, or, or maybe a quick question, I don't know. It, is there a particular uh, patch that, that you, you might view as underappreciated or underrecognized?
2: Well, that's a good question. Um, I think I think when you, what I like to tell people, you know, when you go to the river to fish for whatever thing you think you're going for, you you need to do a little homework and make sure you have all your other bases covered, right? So, this time of year, you're, you might be saying, "Well, I'm going, I'm going to fish Brown Drake." So that little story I relayed earlier, it's like, well, okay, in your brown drake, <laughs> five bars. <eyes. Right. laughs> you know, I mean, you might have, you should have a couple of nymphs and then, um, some dun batters and obviously some spinner patterns, right? Um, but you're going to want to have some yellow flies in there. Um, but you're also going to maybe want to have, um, some isonychias and maybe a hex because you just never know what's going to happen. Um, and, you know, there's a few other things out there as well. Uh, that time of year, there's um, things that, uh, like, for example, the bat fly, um, which was a oh, yeah. completely <laughs> under-recognized, uh, weird, little, bizarre mayfly that, you know, you could be throwing just perfect presentation of a, a big hex mayfly over and over, a fish and and it's eating, but it won't eat your fly, and you you're blaming your fly, and it's actually eating another insect. So sometimes we're we're just so determined that it's the fish's fault, not our fault. It's like,
3: well, <laughs> right. do
2: your homework. Make sure you when you go out this time of year, there's always going to be something that you're not recognizing, I guess, uh, because you're so. Like I'm going hex fishing. You, no one's going to say I'm going bat fly fishing. <laughs> I'm going out for the batfly hatch.
1: Never heard anybody um, say that.
3: <laughs>
2: yeah, exactly. Right. So I guess it's just be aware that there are lots of things out there. Um, we all have our favorite hatches, um, but sure. just know that always, you know, have your have your fly box loaded a little bit on each side, a little bit earlier in the heart hatch chart and a little bit later, and, uh, and then you'll probably mm-hmm. be
4: covered. Yeah, I, I fell victim to that a couple of weeks ago uh, where it was just like, okay, refusal after refusal. And it's like, okay, what? something's not right here. And I just took a time out, sat down and started really scoping it. And here are these little mahogany's, uh turned out to be the flavor <laughs> of the day. Yeah. Good for,
3: mm-hmm. Good for you. Is finding well, well, or...
4: not, but <laughs> yeah. yeah. Then
2: there's always, you know, what, what stage are they feeding on too? That can be a real challenge. Sometimes they're mm-hmm. eating duns, sometimes they're eating, and sometimes you'll have duns and spinners on the water at the same time. Um, sometimes you'll have, you know, the cat is underneath that they're eating, even though you see something else coming off. And so we're never as smart as we think. <laughs> <No. clears
1: throat> I, I'm amazed that it, 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 it seems that they're all eating the same thing. It's, you might have blooming olives or, or sulfurs and brown drakes on the water, and they're eating eating one or the other. It, does, it seems like they're not all eating both. Is there any sense in that? Does that make sense, Anne?
2: No, they, that's very true. I, they get fixated on one. I think it's, you know, we don't really know why, but, you know, it's like maybe it, it's like I like to think of it like when I'm hunting morels. I don't know if you enjoy doing this, but, you know, you can be staring down, crawling around on your hands and knees and then, you know, walk right by them or crawl right by them. And then when you see them, then you can see them and and you pick them out of the leaf litter and it's like your brain is fixated on finding this one thing. And I think Uh, it's true with the, with the trout. I mean, it's like, okay, little mahoganies. Oh, oh, there's one there. There's another boom, 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 boom. And you know, a big brick could hit them in the head of, you know, a a giant something or other, a big isomychia go by and, and they, and they can't un, Disconnect from that little brain process that's going on, um, even and, and as long as that's the most you know voluminous uh, that, that word I want the most volume in the sure. in the river um, <laughs> coming by and um, and then I I think that's why it happens that's I don't know if that's true or not but in my mind that's kind of the no, way it's a good it's, it, a good it's a good thought
1: it, it really is and and the and the mushroom analogy is a good one too.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, I just think you, their eyes are, when a hatch happens, they're fixated on that and and then just the brain image and, um, yeah.
1: E- even more important to do the studies and find out what's in the water and and uh, uh, what they might be eating.
4: Mhm. Yep. And I'll
1: tell you, this has just been an absolutely
4: delightful conversation. I. Can't help but think uh, mm-hmm. that our listeners are gonna come away with a head full of knowledge and uh, uh, ample opportunity to uh to put it to practice. So we're we're most oh, grateful. Thank you. Thank you. And, and, thank uh, you. I've really
1: enjoyed it. I hope those listeners that uh are, are, are catch this uh, podcast will take a look and, and find Ann's uh hatch guide for upper midwest streams. It's in all the fly shops and uh, uh you can get it online I'm sure. That's a great uh well I, great I actually book. have a
2: little bit uh, of bad i have a little bit of bad news on that front
1: um the uh-oh.
2: um my publisher has i think well i i can't say that right now my book is out of print <laughs>
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, and I'm working on um connecting with another publisher, so I would say if you can get your hands on a copy, definitely do it um my plan is to um have a, a new edition, but I I don't have a date on it yet, and I don't have a publisher, and I I would actually consider self-publishing it, except I I'm not really sure what steps to do. You know, I don't know right. much about that. I've explored about that a that. little bit. So um, hopefully, um, you know, by fall I would that would be great. Um, but um, yeah, if you can get your hands on a copy, do it for sure.
4: The well, the publisher done? would be well served to uh, to take up the reins on that, and it's it, I considered it in, indispensable. It uh it sits on my end table with my Peterson and Sibley guides.
3: And, oh great! Uh, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it is,
4: it, as I told Gwen, you know one of my you know morning coffee habits is to uh, start the day with a cup of coffee, walking around looking at the screens from the side of the house to see uh. Uh, he was happy, yeah. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. <clears throat> uh, That's, awesome. Ann, That's John, a
2: great way, great way to do that.
1: Good start, you bet. Yeah. John's on the North Branch, and I'm on Shupec Lake, so we all have a chance to get near the water and see aquatic insects.
2: Great,
4: great.
1: hmm
2: Well, good.
4: Well, and well, thank you again. We, we'll wish you the best with uh, with your daughter's wedding and uh uh hope that you are uh successful in budgeting uh some some time for yourself to get out there and uh do a little bit of angling as well
2: yes i will i will
3: <laughs> i got a <laughs> I got a
2: date coming up next week i'm gonna definitely be north and uh and I have some waters down here I fish too so good,
1: good right day. on right. thank you man That's so awesome. much. It's a delightful okay. Morning.
2: Okay, I've I've really enjoyed my time with you guys. So I uh, thank you as
1: well.
0: Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that as much as Glenn and I enjoyed speaking with Anne. Uh, Just fantastic lady, and uh, what a wealth of information. So enjoy. uh, Be safe this week. Stay tuned. We'll be dropping another one next Friday. And uh, as always, mind your back cast.